This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Jonathan Lehman is the editorial director of Nine Marks in Washington, D.C. Thus, he is responsible for the publication of dozens of books and innumerable other publications. He co-hosts a podcast with Mark Dever entitled Pastor's Talk. He's also the author of 10 books on his own, including Political Church, The Local Assembly is Embassy of Christ's Rule, and How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. Jonathan received his Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Rochester, his Master of Science from the London School of Economics. He received the Master of Divinity from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and his Ph.D. in Political Theology from the University of Wales in Great Britain. He has served as adjunct professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Southeastern Baptist Seminary, and Reformed Theological Seminary. He's an elder at Chevrolet Baptist Church, which was planted out of Capitol Hill Baptist Church last year. Jonathan and his wife Shannon have four daughters. This Thinking in Public conversation was recorded live before an audience at the Gospel Coalition in Indianapolis in April of 2019. Jonathan Lehman, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you for the contribution you made through your book, How the Nations Rage. And with you, I can have a little bit of a different kind of conversation than I can have with others. And so I just want to ask you, why do you write a book? You've written more than one. I write books. Why? What, what, What is behind writing a book? Book generally, or that book in particular? Well, first of all, why do you write books? I recall, I think it was Doug Wilson said something about, I write to stop the conversations inside of my head. Right? It's just your head's burning with something. You got to say, you get it out. So there, there's something about being a writer. That's why you do it, uh, obviously, at one level. At another level, there are things that you need to say, especially as a Christian minister. Right. There are kingdom things that you want to say and do and accomplish, and you want to be a good steward of the opportunities the Lord has given and the skills he's given. So, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a calling in that regard. Sure. And I, the, I think one of the things that comes to my mind is that there's a distinctively Christian reason uh, for writing a book. And that is because Christianity is, in essence, a literary culture. It's, mm. it's a lot more than that, but it's never been less than that. Uh, nor was Israel. Uh, we, we talk about a self-existent, self-revealing God who gives us scripture. It's, it's writing. There's something objective about a text that is not equally objective if it's just auditory speech. And so in Scripture, we, we have, we're able to read what Moses heard from God from the bush that burned and was not consumed. And uh, wherever you have found Christians, you have found texts, you have found authors, you have found books, sometimes polemical, apologetic, uh, sometimes homiletical and theological, uh, sometimes uh, literary, uh, fictive, uh, but you find books. I don't think that's an accident. Well, I, I like the way Mark Dever talks about the fact that we live in the age of the ear. When we were in the garden, we could see God, mm-hmm. right? We walked, Adam and Eve walked with him. But then upon eviction from the garden, knowledge of God always became mediated through words, right? With the exception of the, the coming of Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. And we long to see God, but until he comes again, we live in the age of the ear. And how remarkable it is that we have yeah, the Old Testament scriptures, the New Testament scriptures. And it's amazing to me how many countless books have been written about that book, right? Right. And I, I think Christians of all people, I've always wondered if, 
if uh, you could survey, pub- if publishers could survey, how many books does the average Christian read versus the average non-Christian? I mean, I know how Christians are stereotyped. Right. You know, think of that old Washington Post. What, what, what was the phrase? Uh, easily, literate, easily, mis- illiterate, easily misled or... Yes, ba- basically ignorant and easily led. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I-, I wonder... Most of the Christians I know, I think, are bigger readers than the non-Christians I know. That's anecdotal. I wonder if there are surveys. Yeah. We like to read. Well, I, I can tell you, you can certainly look at it anecdotally when you consider the fact that uh, if you come to a conference like the one we're attending right now, you've got table after table after table of books, and you've got and people young people picking up books and planning to read them and talking to one another about books. Which I think is, uh, well, I, I will tell you, I know of people who are not evangelical Christians who are quite surprised by that and, and haven't ever been to a conference like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm grateful for my teachers who, who taught me that, and uh, I'm grateful for my friends who love to talk about books. So thank you for this conversation. I don't have much to contribute on Slavic literature. Um, but There's a reason why you don't teach it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, the, by the way, that's true for both of us. Neither right. one of us is a candidate for a, uh, a, a, a an endowed chair in Slavic studies and yeah. literature. Uh, the first problem for me would be a language problem. But on the other hand, as a teenager, I started reading Slavic literature, and it captured my heart in English translation. Sure. Um, I think the first work by Tolstoy I read I was in high school, and it was one of his short works, and uh, I was taken into a world of meaning that I could not have known otherwise. I can't think of anything far more distant from a teenager in Florida than the experience of an old man in, uh, in 19th century Russia. But there it was, and uh, by reading Tolstoy, there I was. Yeah. I, um, same th- it wasn't in high school. It was a little later in college reading Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Yeah, and you're immersed in a different world, a different way of seeing things. Immensely valuable. Now, when you say that, so we're going to turn to talk about your book in just a moment. But one of the interesting things is how I had to think differently about reading someone like Tolstoy. Because the, uh, the teenage evangelical I was, was incredibly suspicious of reading anything that wasn't written by an evangelical. Hmm. Uh, Tolstoy was not an evangelical, which he would no. be the first to insist upon. No. Um, and so I had this suspicion as a teenager that I had better be careful that I read only what was written by people who shared my worldview. But I found that was impossible. Uh, First of all, because there weren't that many books written by the people who shared my worldview that that I had access to. But then this great world of literature and thought, politics and economics and history, uh, was beckoning unto me. And uh, I had to learn that a Christian reading critically is, uh, is actually... Uh, able to help the church in a way that a Christian who doesn't read dangerous literature can never be. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure, uh, yeah, certainly that's true. My, my own experience growing up was very different in that regard. I uh, love, I considered myself a Christian. I called mm-hmm. myself a Christian. I don't think I was. And I loved literature that pushed me in new directions. In college, m- the closest thing I had to a Bible was Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. And That's not close. Yeah. No, it's not. In fact, in fact one, of my, one of my, you know, here, here's an example. One of, my, one of my favorite lines from that that I kind of still enjoy quoting from time to time is uh, 
Do I contradict myself? Very well, I contradict myself. I'm vast. I contain multitudes. That's Walt Whitman. It also makes that's sense to any adolescent. I contain <laughs> multitudes. And I was an adolescent, yeah. that's right. But no, that's, see, that's the sort of thing I enjoyed. But so when I came into the Christian faith, um, yeah, I think that study, that kind of literature gave me a better understanding of the silliness of so much non-Christian worldview, but also the intelligence of so many non-Christians and knowing how to engage with them. We have a good explanation for that with common grace. Yeah, that's and, right. Uh, the, the Imago Dei, as a matter of fact. But that will have to be a different conversation. Uh, the conversation specifically we want to get to is about your recent book, How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. So after asking you why you write books, I want to ask you the obvious question, why did you write this book? Yeah, there's Jonathan Lehman, the political theorist. I did graduate studies in political theory. And there's Jonathan Lehman, the pastor. And Jonathan Lehman, the political... You contain multitudes. (laughs) You said it. Jonathan Lehman, the political theorist, wrote it because he believes, Scripture teaches, that the public square is nothing more or less than a battleground of gods. We go there on behalf of our gods. And uh, the way that the common assumption in culture is, hey, we can divide our politics and religion, and, and you Christians, you need to leave your religion at the door, but we, the idolaters, they don't call themselves that, the idolaters come in and they don't leave their idolatry at right. the door, and they're happy to impose their idolatry on us. So the political theorist in Jonathan wanted to say, okay, let's, let's reconsider the, the faith right. uh, politics landscape. I'm a big advocate of separation of church and state. I've written many books on the church. I'm all about separation of church and state. But faith and politics, that's, that's something slightly different. Okay, so that's the political theorist. The pastor in Jonathan Lehman, uh, I've, I've been privileged to serve as an elder at Capitol Hill Baptist Church for a number of years. We recently left to plan another church, Chevrolet Baptist Church, and, and teaching some of this material as a Sunday school class. The pastor in Jonathan Lehman wanted to Help Christians understand that true righteousness, true justice begins in our life together in the congregation. We are the city on the hill. The nation isn't the city on the hill. We and the church are the city on the hill. So in a sense, the the first place Christians need to learn politics is inside the local church. So those are kind of the two main animating ideas for me as as I wrote this book. So as a teenager the same teenager enthralled with literature, I was intellectually captivated by political theory. Yeah. I had a, uh, a high school class I was privileged to be in, very rare, you wouldn't think of this in most high schools, on political theory. And, um, and there weren't that many of us in there. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of picture the class. <laughs> but uh, we, were, we were in that class, and, and so we started reading the Greeks and the Romans on political theory, then all the way through. It was a, a two-volume uh, paperback set of political theory. And I think that's what made me, in many ways, a theologian. And, and mm-hmm. people will not understand that unless they come to understand that those books were asking the most basic questions about life and meaning and order. Justice. Absolutely. Righteousness. Uh, even love, even mm-hmm. love in many ways. And so I found myself having to think, how would a Christian think about this? And uh, it, it did lead to an apologetic crisis in my life. But I think it also in so many ways made me a theologian. And, uh, and one of the things you do in introducing this book is to point out, and I'm putting words in your mouth here, 
that many Christians have an artificially restrictive understanding of polis and of politics. And they think they tend to, to conflate politics and government. Um, that's, that's not helpful. Right. Well, politics, thank you. Politics is about ordering our lives mm-hmm. in, in, in a kind of a broad generic sense. Right. How do we order our lives in the society, in the polis, right? And, and what, is the, what are the rules of justice that then govern how we rule our lives together? And what are the sources of justice? And in the Western American liberal tradition, we tend to think of that as a two-party conversation, at least, at least of late, right? You have the rulers and the, the ruled. Um, and I, Scripture, would say, well, no, actually, re- remove the sky and realize that God is God over, he's king of kings and lord of right. lords, right? It's a three-party conversation. And that, that, that affects all of our lives. That, that's exactly right. And uh, now that raises lots of difficult questions. So are you a theonomist? Is that, is that what you're saying? Um, do, do you impose the Bible on non-Christians? Is that, is that what's good? So there's a lot of tough questions that we, we immediately need to get into. Right. But recognizing that... The, the Israelite claim, Yahweh is king, and the Christian claim, Jesus is Lord, is an astoundingly political statement Right, that pertains to all of life, including government. Outside of Scripture, the most important influence in my thinking is Augustine. Mm-hmm. Augustine convinced me early on that the church is, first of all, a polis, right. a distinctive people who belong to God, but who are ordered according to the rule of Christ in Scripture in such a way that uh, in, in his book on the city of God, and, and of course he speaks also of the city of man and, and these two cities animated by two different loves, he makes very clear that, uh, that the ordering of God's people in the church is actually the church's first priority before the ordering of the society beyond. Right. I think if you come to Washington, D.C., and you walk up to the Lincoln Monument, and you look to your right, and you see the second inaugural address inscribed mm-hmm. in marble there in the law, and you see that beautiful last, one of the last sentences in it about uh, fervently praying and hoping that we would achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. What a, what a, what a beautiful phrase. Achieve and cherish right. a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Well, friends... Where do we first achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations? Where, where is it that is to say we will beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks? Well, the local church, right? That, that's where it should begin anyhow. So no, the, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I love Augustine in that regard. And um, I, in, in many ways, that's what I think, in, if we're going to get wonky, for a second. We need to bring a little bit more uh, Augustinianism into our understanding of the American experiment yes. and what we've done. So, Which, by the way, Lincoln did. Mm-hmm. Um, Alan Gelzo, uh, I was reading just recently, describes him as a, uh, a secularized Calvinist. And, well, well, Lincoln is that way. Lincoln as a oh. secularized Calvinist. And I, I think well, that's Well, you see all of true. that throughout the speeches. Yeah, right. I think he's kind of a secularized Augustinian before uh-huh. that. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not that Gelzo's wrong. I just think that uh, the, the deep understanding of the brokenness of the world that Augustine helps us to see. Um, Lincoln knew that. The ironies, as uh, Niebuhr would call, the uh, ironies of history. Um, Augustine helps us, I, I think, to understand that. And Lincoln saw that. But he was 
secularized in that sense. Well, and do you, do you feel like Lincoln became more and more that way the f- older he got and the further into the war he got? It's, it's, I feel like those themes came out more prominently. Is, would you have uh, I mean, a similar uh, observation? Elton Trueblood, by the way, you, you cite him in the book. Uh-huh. Uh, I knew Elton Trueblood, wrote my honors uh-huh. thesis as an undergraduate on Elton Trueblood, got to meet him and to spend some time with him. Uh, he wrote a biography of Lincoln entitled Lincoln, Theologian of American Anguish. And, uh, you know, a part of his reading of Lincoln is that Lincoln became more anguished the older he got. Uh, His heart is broken by the end. That second inaugural address is so deeply theological, but it's it's uttered by a man with no discernible theology. Yeah, yeah. I I love the way uh, your own faculty member, John Wilsey, talks about it in his book, uh, civil religion, American exceptionalism and civil religion, yeah. uh, a, a tremendous look at Lincoln and his form of exceptionalism, very open-handed exceptionalism, and I think he does a good job. Mark Knoll does a great job thinking about the theology, all of that, and both sides of the Civil War. Uh, yeah, a lot of great resources. Now, in your book, uh, you cite Winston Churchill and the adage uh, in which he said, we're paraphrasing him here, that democracy is the worst form of government, yeah. uh, except for all the others that have been tried. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's a sense in which I want to borrow from Churchill, which I do quite often, in order to say that if you're looking at the history of Christian political engagement, it's really, in many ways, a long list of wrong ways to engage politics, because we tend to learn by the failure of previous attempts. And so you wrote this book at a particular time in American history and society. And uh, it was at a time when I think many Christians were beginning to realize whatever we have thought about our relationship to the political order in the past, it doesn't exactly fit now. Yeah, that's exactly right. Think about, let's go back again to the American founding. Think about Washington and Adams, who both had a, a, a very acute sense that this form of government is only going to work in a virtuous, and I think they even would even use religious society, and it's going to be, it's not going to work in an unvirtuous Mm -hmm. society. And I would say, in many ways, history is proving those two correct. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think what we see is people talk about, let's let's take about those three values of the, uh, the American experiment, rights, equality, freedom. Those are good things, right? Biblical things, it seems like. Can, can we agree just to have a nation built together on those three ideas, rights, equality, freedom, even though we disagree on our religion? Okay, well, that's going to work one way when the society is divided between uh, Congregationalists and Anglicans and Presbyterians and Baptists and, you know, maybe some Deists and Catholics and Jews. Rights, equality, and freedom are basically going to mean the same thing. Yeah. Well, fast forward 200 years— and now society is divided between secularists and progressivists and nuns and spiritual, not religious, and born-agains and Muslims and Hindus and hockey players and stockbrokers. Well, what equality, rights, freedom mean now right. are very different things. Right to an abortion, marriage equality, freedom to choose my own dinner, uh, gender, who gets to define Those are rights two different things. Those are Choosing very dinner different and gender. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and behind each of those words is a conception of justice. Right. 
What are Christians interested in? They're interested in a just equality, a just rights, a just understanding of freedom. Well, who determines what justice is? Well, your big G or little G God. Right. Marianne Glendon at the Harvard uh, Law School uh, years ago wrote about the transformation in American civil and even uh, legal discourse from a shared understanding of right and wrong with rights emerging out of that framework to now right and wrong gone and mm-hmm. rights you know hung in the air and she, she, her book was entitled rights talk you know this is this is, there's no shared meaning everybody uses the word rights but no one even agrees on uh, on what rights mean who secures them um, how are they to be applied uh, in your book you you begin uh, by helping Christians to think about political theory and, and, and political order in, and in a, an explicitly theological frame, which I, I greatly appreciate. But as the book unfolds, it turns out this is a lot more complicated, I think, than most Christians want to think it is. Uh, because I think what most Christians want to know is what's the safe position to hold? How, how can I be faithful and uh, vote Engage And again, they so often conflate politics with government that we're really just thinking about elections. Mm-hmm. But you're really challenging Christians to read a couple hundred pages about what they really want to be reduced to a few paragraphs. Yeah, I, I wanted to simplify it as much as I could, but and, and maybe, not maybe, it is the inadequacy of my own brain to, to put some things more simply than I, I, I would like to have done. But no, it is a complicated topic. Let me... Uh, Politics, in many respects, is the domain of wisdom, right? Um, Proverbs 8, wisdom calls out, calls aloud. What does she say in verses 14 and 15 of Proverbs 8? She says, by me, kings reign and rulers govern. Wisdom is tough to come by. It's complicated. There's a time and a season for everything, a time to build, a time to tear down. What time is it now? I need wisdom to know that. So the, the two prostitutes come before Solomon. My baby, no, my baby. Well, what's the answer? Well, the Bible doesn't say. He needs wisdom. I know, bring me a sword, right? Real mama says, oh, it's hers, she can have it. The, the narrator, verse 28, then summarizes that as, uh, and the people of God, were, or people of Israel were amazed that God had given wisdom to Solomon to do justice. And I often say, if you want the political philosophy of the Bible in a single verse, don't give me Aristotle, don't give me Plato, don't give me Hobbes or Locke, give me that verse. We need God's wisdom to do justice. But wisdom is hard. It's complicated. So that's my my long way of answering your, your point. Yeah, it's complicated. I guess one observation that might be helpful is that as much as many Christians enjoy talking about politics, they often do not give much thought to thinking politically. Those are really two different things. It's easy to talk about politics, just talk about whatever is the most instant controversy from the headlines of social media, or for that matter, just listen to the conversation of the age. But if you're going to think politically, this is where Christians have to think simultaneously theologically. We have to think biblically. We have to think politically, never isolating politics from the totality of our worldview, nor from our prior theological commitments. This kind of conversation is at least a down payment on what it means for Christians to think, and furthermore, to converse politically. 
Much of your theory of government is drawn from the second psalm, as is the title of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, uh, you read it a bit differently than maybe a conventional reading of, of Psalm 2. You're the first person to tell me that. Okay. I don't disbelieve you. No, I'm just saying that most people do not read that as explicitly political, mm-hmm. uh, but rather actually pointing to the transcendence of, uh, of God over politics. But you throw us right back into politics. Well, the, 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 the kings and the nations are raging against who? The Lord and against his anointed. Why? Well, because the Lord and his anointed require things of the kings of the nations that, that, that uh, they don't like. So, yeah, I, I understand that to be immediately impactful. And then you go down to the latter verses, and it says, uh, uh, it warns the kings of the nations again and says, kiss the son lest he be angry. Right? Well, who, who are the kings of the United States? It's us, the voters. Right? And he's not just talking to Israel here. He's talking to the nations. Mm-hmm. He's talking to us. So, yeah, I, I do see an, an immediate relevance for the kings of the earth, the voters of the earth in, in Psalm 2 and what we're called to do in bowing before King Jesus. I didn't say I thought you were wrong. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's just that uh, we tend to spiritualize yeah, no, as evangelicals right. uh, every text and perhaps especially the Psalms in such a way that it would be shocking to many evangelicals to be told this is a political psalm. Uh, this this psalm is going to require of you a different understanding of the powers that be. Well, you know what helped me realize that is a conversation I had with a member in my church who I think you actually spoke to with as well. He had just been elected into office. Yes. And this was before Obergefell. And... He was confronted in in his uh, legislative body with a bill to approve same-sex marriage, and he he was a young Christian, and he had reasoned to himself, okay, well, you have biblical marriage, and then you have civil marriage. In the state, it's a a set of benefits, and it doesn't matter, And, and, and this was his reasoning, I shouldn't impose my Christian views and the Bible on a secular, unbelieving public. That would be wrong to do. Right. And I remember sitting on a park bench with him one day, and we were talking about this, and I, I just opened up Revelation 6 to him, and I'm quickly turning in my book to find it, and I'm not finding it here. Here it is. And, and I read to him, I said, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave or free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? Well, why will the kings and generals, why will every political class, slave and free, fear the coming of Christ's Wrath. Well, because they did not use their political opportunities, whether high or low, to live according to God's word. In other words, the accountability of the nations, the political accountability of the nations depends on the fact that God is judge. Yeah. And if he's not judge, well, then they're not accountable. But if his judgment is coming, and as Christians we believe his judgment is coming, they are accountable for everything they do in the jury box, in the voting booth, on the Senate floor, and so forth. And that's what I tried to convey to this brother. No, you, you do not want to put your hand to something that will one day incur the wrath of the Lamb. Yes. 
I do remember that very situation and a lot of conversation with that brother and uh, receiving the very same argument. And I was very glad to be able to say to him, I have really good news for you, and that is we are not the first Christians to try to figure some of this out. And I actually took him back to Augustine. And, uh, you know, one of the early principles that Christians came to, because Christians didn't have to worry about a lot of politics as government in the beginning, because Christians are being persecuted They're and martyred. Utterly disenfranchised. No sure. political responsibility. But after the, uh, the Constantinian Revolution, there's a lot of political responsibility. A lot of question comes, you know, then how do we, how do we act rightly? And, and one, of the, uh, one of the truths I was glad to share with him, one of the principles is that uh, we, we, we believe in common grace, and, and we believe that the purpose of government is to uphold righteousness and to execute justice. And the Christian legislator, the Christian statesman, the way it would have been described, cannot always achieve what he believes to be right, but can never affirm what he knows to be wrong. No, that's exactly right. And that's a very helpful thing, for, I think, for all of us, not just politicians. Well, and, and recognizing... One of the first questions you need to ask as a Christian looking to read the Bible politically, okay, what applies broadly, what doesn't, is asking the question, okay, what does God authorize the government to do? And also recognize the difference between prescribing something and proscribing something, between subsidizing something and criminalizing something. It's, there's a difference between, say, criminalizing sexual immorality. Right. I mean, should we criminalize fornication? There's a difference between that and subsidizing uh, immoral activity. And so my argument would be that marriage law subsidizes, incentivizes particular forms of activity because it's in the state's interest. And therefore, God has not authorized the state to subsidize, sanction, support something that is immoral. Right. So say, I would say the same thing with gambling. So I... Uh, should you criminalize gambling? Well, we can have a conversation about that. I'm fairly confident that the government shouldn't sanction gambling. Much less which, profit by it. No, that's right, which it would do through state lotteries and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, the other argument to be made from the Christian political history about this kind of question would be that we are accountable for uh, actions that lead to human flourishing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and thus, I just ask this brother again straightforwardly uh will legalizing same-sex marriage lead to human flourishing or will it you believe honestly uh hamper human flourishing and he said i think it will hamper i said well then you can't vote for it you know the, the, it's uh it, but it's really good to know that christians have been struggling this for a very long time in sense uh in one sense you could say western civilization since the fourth century at the very least, is a long struggle of people who have at least predominantly operated out of a Christian worldview until very recently trying to struggle with these huge questions. Well, then when you study the history of Christian political thought, sure enough, you, you, know, you get Augustine's two cities, you mentioned that, and then Galatians' two swords, and fast forward, you get Luther's two kingdoms. They sound similar. Well, they're not quite similar. They're not quite the same thing. And I'm trying to figure out how they work together. And then you get to more of a Kuyperian one kingdom concept with different sphere sovereignty. And then Oliver O'Donovan, more recently, somebody who's been influential on me in different ways, kind of his two ages. Yeah, so it's just kind of a bewildering array of You skipped of over Grotius and Aquinas. And, no, 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 yeah. no, that's right. There was a whole medieval period there, which was not, 
just the dark ages. Right. There was a lot of really important thinking taking place there. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, and, but, but back to this conversation uh, with this one individual, it was complicated for me just to think about the question, okay, well, wh- how do I as a pastor of this church lean in on him? So with another illustration, a pastor of the same church, and I think you know this story as well, a pastor of the same church, Capital Baptist, back in the 50s, K.O. and White, yeah. in 1960, stood in front of uh, John, presidential candidate, Senator John F. Kennedy, and said, are you going to take orders from the Pope? And candidate Kennedy, and he was there with a lot of other Protestant ministers in Houston, and uh, candidate Kennedy said, no, I believe in the separation of church and state, and uh, no, the, the, the Pope cannot dictate things to a president should he be Catholic, nor should a Protestant minister be telling his members how to vote. Now, my guess is, K.O. and White would have been happy to tell this brother how to act in our present scenario. Whereas back in 1960s, he didn't want to hear that from uh, John F. Kennedy. Well, so how how do we put these things together? Again, they're they're, they're tough. When you speak, when you don't speak. That illustration always irritates me. Uh, Why is is that? Not that you used it, because it's an obvious point for you to use with the irony of K.O. and White having been pastor. He yeah. was later pastor of First Baptist Houston, Texas. I think he was when, yeah. he, when he confronted. He was. Kennedy. He was uh, uh, hosting the uh, Houston Baptist Ministers Association. Right. The, uh, the, the thing that irritates me, not from you, but from most people citing that, is that those pastors were obviously wrong to ask Kennedy that question, when that is not obvious. Because people forget, they think post-Vatican II. Mm-hmm. Actually, pre-Vatican II, and the changes that came with John Courtney Murray and others, you know, with the, the changes in the Vatican position. If you, go back to, uh, if you go back to the late 19th century, the Catholic Church is saying that it has an absolute right to tell Catholic uh, mm-hmm. politicians exactly how they should vote. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't Baptist suspicion that the Catholic Church was teaching that. The Catholic Church was saying that as loudly as it could. Um, and so Kennedy was actually a good politician and a horrible Catholic yeah. uh, in making that statement. But, but, but look, he, he presaged um, the shape of many Catholic politicians to follow. Well, sure. And then we think about where it's gone since. You right. know, uh, Ed, Ed Kennedy and you know, the trouble he had on, right. on, on abortion and so forth. And even more recently, Cuomo and so forth. So, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. there's a tradition there that Kennedy seemed to have inaugurated. Yeah, and uh, one point we need to make here is that Catholics have had no choice but to have this conversation because the church has forced the conversation. And it's been forced upon Catholics, at least in the United States, because of the confrontation between historic Catholic dogma and American democracy. But evangelical Protestants in general and evangelical Protestants in particular are late to this discussion because we felt really at home here. Yeah. Uh, the society was until recently uh, pretty much ordered the way we thought it should be. The conversations and debates were kind of uh, intramural. Uh, but now we're in a different situation entirely. And I think that's a part of the occasion for the disequilibrium. Well, in many ways, these are the reasons I wrote the book, because I didn't feel like Christians these days uh, had an adequate grasp on how to think about these things here and now. I, I use the analogy in the book. It's as if we have this big pot of stew with so many political lines from Scripture and sacred lines from American history sort of simmering and cooking together. So render to Caesar what is Caesar's, cooking in there together with of the people, by the people, Mm -hmm. for the people, and in God we trust, and so forth. And 
Nature and uh, nature's God. That's right. And I and I, I what will well what does that mean? How do I put together oh, me reach in with my ladle and grab out a phrase? Well that's gonna work for right now. But we don't have a systematic and I would say Baptist uh, way of appropriately thinking about the role of government and our responsibility as Christian citizens and the role of pastors and churches on that same land, landscape. And so that's that's a burden of mine to give much more clarity to that conversation, again, as a theorist and as a pastor. An argument can be made that cognitive minorities have to think about things much more seriously than cognitive majorities. Yeah. So, uh, when and being pushed into the minority right, right. now, in, in many respects, it's forcing us to, to rethink. That's absolutely, exactly right. absolutely. Uh, I found tremendous agreement when I read your book, uh, and you and I, this isn't our first conversation about these things, and we're a part of a larger conversation we That's share right. about these things. Uh, you are in a unique position, having a pastoral responsibility for many years on Capitol Hill, and even now in the Washington, D.C. area, which is a, an intellectual force field that distorts reality. Uh, <laughs> I understand that pastorally in ways you can just guess at. <laughs> well, even through... Distortions yeah, of reality. Yeah. Well, uh, as you know, I've got a lot of investment in, investment yeah. in that personally. And uh, a part of this comes down to the fact that for most Americans, a lot of these questions are things they think about when they're in an argument. They think about it when they read the newspaper, or uh, oh, that's kind of anachronistic. Uh, you know, when they when they are engaged in social media, they think about it with elections. But Washington thinks about it all the time. And for those who live in Washington, it's uh, it's now twenty four seven political combat. Oh, that's exactly right. Honestly, with this, these upcoming elections, part mm-hmm. of me just wants to turn it off and not pay attention because we get it so much. But no, this shapes the lives of members of our church in dramatic ways. Uh, let me use an, an election anecdote, but I think this captures some, something of what we feel congregationally mm-hmm. throughout the year. Uh, the Sunday after the election, I've been teaching through the Sunday school class that eventually became this book. And that week I was supposed to teach on government and family. And 2016, you know what a crazy election remember. night that was. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh gosh, it just didn't seem, that Sunday morning didn't seem the time to get up and talk about government and family. And so I started with 20 minutes of just kind of pastoral remarks, trying to encourage the the, the folk who came to the Sunday school class, but a couple hundred people were there, and talk about, if, if your if you're candidate won, please understand and empathize with people who whose candidate lost, and, and frankly, they're feeling afraid right now. And if you're a Christian, I don't care if you're rejoicing, you, you need to understand you're part of the body of Christ, explaining empathy. And if your candidate lost, let me pastor you a little bit. You know, our hope is finally in heaven. And so, so here I am trying to, to pastor the congregation. Well, an older African-American lady raised her hand at that point and said, um, nobody's empathizing with me. I, I feel unempathized with. How come the pastors haven't been calling me? And uh, I, actually, I knew a pastor had called her. But nonetheless, I understand how she felt. And I'm just like, sister, I'm sorry. I, I know that's tough. And then a few minutes later, another middle-aged woman, a white woman, stood up and said, uh, I can't believe that I'm hearing some of this. You know, the, 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 demon, the, the Democrats are, are evil, and this, this, this was a great day. 
Now, I'm, 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 I'm genuinely not trying to make light of, of either. I'm trying to say that's the reality on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. We're in living an extremely in. well-identified gospel church. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, Complementarian, okay. reformed in theology. Yeah, that's right. Exercising church discipline. 60-minute sermons <laughs> on a good day. Okay, so how do you pastor both of those women? How do you maintain the, the unity of spirit and the bond of peace and draw both to the Lord's table? Well, that's a pastoral challenge, right? Right. And uh, uh, goodness, that's what, that's what I want to see pastors across America and Christians across America learn how to do a little bit better. Part of that is learning how yeah. to think about government and our responsibility. I want to press you on a couple issues that, uh, that come from my reading of the book. And by the way, you all need to read the book. And will benefit tremendously by reading it. And uh, you'll discover that in a conversation like this, we've hardly skimmed the surface of either the analysis or the biblical engagement uh, that Jonathan brings. I want to pressure on two things. Uh, one is what I didn't find in the book as much as I expected to, and that's common grace. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, uh, Se- second issue? Yeah, no. <laughs> Well, I, look, I just wrote a book. You can't do everything you want to do in a book. No, I'm just wondering right. about that. Mm-hmm. Well, where, where if, if I had inserted it, where it would have shown up is in the chapter on, okay, how then do we engage the public square? How do we make arguments in the public square? And I talk about you have common ground arguments and you have right. sectarian arguments. Common ground, I gave three types, talking about kind of the appealing to conscience, appealing to natural law, appealing to social sciences and statistics, right? right? What, what are you doing there? You're stepping into the public square and you're trying to make arguments and have conversations with people who don't share your worldview. And so you got to find common ground, right? right. And that's, where I, that's one place where common grace, I think, is going to play a crucial role. I think another place is, is recognizing that in many of what I call jag, or following Bene, jagged line issues, where the, the Bible isn't speaking clearly mm-hmm. to this or that particular application. What do we do on carbon dioxide emissions? What do we do on tax rates? What do we do on healthcare policy? Recognizing that by virtue of common grace, our, our non-Christian friends and neighbors are going to have competencies and skills that exceed our own, and absolutely we should be listening to them. So those would be two different places where right. more could have been said, absolutely. Well, that's helpful, and I, I could read between the lines, and I, I knew where you were headed, especially in the argument section. Yeah. Um, where, where, would you, where would you expand common grace? I think I would have I mean, this is, I start real early with common grace in political theory uh-huh. as even why we can have a shared vocabulary yeah. and, and, and why we assume that even people who aren't Christians are genuinely concerned with uh, public order, with public welfare, and, and even in their own way with human flourishing. Mm-hmm. And that uh, we, we have an explanation by the Imago Dei of, of why, in common grace, why they have concepts of justice and righteousness and why, why, why they love their children. Would you say would you say government is a common grace institution? Uh, I would, but I, I actually spoke about this today. As a matter of fact, it's a post-fall institution, right? So, whereas you have marriage, family, coercive government is a post-fall institution. Yeah, well, I would say you have uh, marriage. 
family, society, and industry before the fall. Government's just the society, rightly ordered under the sovereignty of God. There's no, there's, there's no necessity of what we would call as the organs of government the way there is now. There, there'd be no poverty. There would be no need for restrictive law. So you can say coercive but, or didactic. Well, they would have had to figure out, do we drive on the right side or left side of the road? And right. all agreed on that. Right. But there would have been no punitive me- need for punitive measures. And the cars wouldn't have had any pollution. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah. true. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, so we, we, one of the things we learn from Scripture is we don't get to speculate as much as we'd like to about Edenic society. Yeah. Because Genesis 3 comes so quickly, and then you point to Genesis 9, rightly, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh, in the coercive uh-huh. power of government. Uh, but I, I would have brought it in earlier. Got it. Um, and, and, and when it comes to Christians making appeals— uh, I, I think it's an important part. Is it has to be at least a background affirmation. We can actually talk to people using language, uh, using words like justice, and there is more of a shared understanding than most Christians sometimes understand. That doesn't mean we have shared convictions or even a shared understanding of why or what that would look like, but we know it's not by accident that an atheist invokes justice. A friend named Sam Amadi told me that you once said ontology always wins right. over ethics. Is, no. What was the phrase? Ontology, ontology trumps autonomy. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. in a sense, that's what you're saying right yeah. now. Yeah. But by virtue of creation and by virtue of that atheist being formed in the image of God, uh, he, she has certain wired in according to the wisdom of God, ways of seeing right. things that will yield a kind of justice, sense of justice. Absolutely. The, the other thing I want to press you on a little bit, and, uh, and, and this is just an honest conversation because we do have issues looming before us. Politics is also a moving argument uh, by definition, not only through time over long millennia, but uh, frankly over long minutes um, in today's world. Uh, you, you really work hard at describing how a church, in this context, your, your, your book is clearly written to this context. It's kind of a post-2016 manifesto for yeah. the uh, gospel church uh, in the United States, first of all. And, uh, and in it— There go my translation possibilities. Thanks. Yeah, well— <laughs> Just kidding. Um, first of all, we'll just say first of all, before it's obvious applications to societies everywhere throughout time— um, as, as you think about this, so you used illustrations a moment ago about, you know, Republican and a Democrat and uh, with, uh, with, with the jagged, you know, issues. Straight line versus straight jagged line, line issues, yeah, sure. Uh, Robert Benet and making that mm-hmm. distinction is very helpful. So, but you also do something else. And, and this is where I'm wondering how your paragraphs are going to collide at some point. So you reference without saying the confessing church, I think, but you're talking about the confessing church in Germany. You come, you clearly condemn the German Christians for siding with idolatry and paganism, nihilism and murder. And, uh, and you say at some point, German Christians had to come to an understanding that that was what was at stake. Uh, and eventually, Barman, eventually the, the full understanding. So I just, I just want to ask you, on, on the issue of the sanctity of human life, which is an issue in motion, do you feel the danger that we're coming to a political moment in which you're not going to be able to talk about a two-party system without invoking a similar logic? Yeah. 
<laughs> you really pushed your finger on it with that one. Um, I, 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 I will say, I think the ground is shifting beneath our feet. And I feel less able to say that certain areas of Christian freedom that I would have said existed even a decade ago, I feel less able to say exist today in terms of party identification. I feel that, uh, well, let me use an analogy. Christians in China are unable to take positions in government because doing so means signing up for the Communist Party, which means affirming that there is no God, and Christians, by definition, cannot do that. So by definition, Christians in China are disenfranchised. And is it possible that we're moving to a time in the West where Christians will feel unable to identify with this party? with that party, with this candidate, with that candidate, and feel an increasing sense of disenfranchisement. I think that's possible. Uh, I feel, okay, so here I am kind of walking around evading. Uh, I have a hard time at this point uh, knowing how a Christian can vote for the party that is becoming so demonically... um, um, inarguably, uh, no exceptions allowed. Pro yeah. infanticide, pro abortion, and that is just. Are there pro-life Democrats? Yes. Are there pro-life Democrat office holders? Can you be an office holder in the Democratic Party and be pro-life? Uh, Apparently not. It doesn't seem so. Apparently not. And this has been something that's been developing over time. I want time. you to answer yeah. that question. <clears throat> I would go back to the conversation I had with the legislator. Um, I, think, I think in one sense, American Christians are going to have to think in more European terms. Uh, Looking for alternative parties? N- well, that is the second point. The first point I would make is that Um, In most European systems, you're actually voting for a party. You're not voting for a chief executive. You know, the prime minister, the head of government is elected by the party, and that can shift. I mean, just like a Great Britain may have shifted during our conversation here. Um, (laughs) But but it's more clear, I think, to most thoughtful Christians in Europe that you're voting for a set of ideas. Uh, And... uh, and you really don't have a whole lot of choice about how those ideas may be translated into candidate A, maybe head of government B or C. And, and so thinking that way, yes, I, I have to say I'm finding it impossible to believe how a Christian, because I think it is Barman. I think, I think, I think and, and this is what's happened on the Democratic side in lightning speed with no formal necessity. That's what's shocking to me. There's no formal necessity for this. They, they could get Seems all of their... electorally they could move towards the center and the, be better for... The, you would think it would be to their political advantage. No, that's right. So I just have to assume they really believe this. And now I can explain that philosophically. I can explain how moving from A to B to C to D it is an inexorable logic eventually. But yeah, I, I raise the question because I think the terms of 2020 are likely to be different than 2016. No, that's right. Simply because of what you're going to see as the official positions of the party. You saw that in 16 in the platforms. 
but not with the kind of obvious implications. That's right. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, no. Let me let me give the listener a little bit of background here on, on what Dr. Moeller is referring to. Is is in the book I talk about how certainly there are parties and times where you just a Christian can't do it. Right. right? Nazi party? Can you vote for a Nazi party? No. Can, can you be a member of my church and be a member of the Ku Klux Klan? No. We will excommunicate you right. if you are a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Okay. Well, what about Republicans? What about Democrats? Right? And could a point in history come? Could a point in American history come where you would say, No, you cannot be a Christian and member of said party? Right. And if so, what are the criteria for when that point comes? Well, that is a tough pastoral question. Being on Capitol Hill, something we historically have tried really hard to do is to maintain kind of nonpartisan posture because we want Republicans and Democrats to be saved. Right. Right. And so that has been the pastoral objective. Right. To be nonpartisan in that regard and not to bind the conscience in a matter of party identification, recognizing that somebody might be voting for a a Democrat or Republican and still be pro-life. Um, and so we, we've attempted to say there, and so kind of the background to his question was, uh, okay, when does the point come when though that be, no longer becomes viable? And he, he, one more thing. What's tough is you don't want to come across as a Christian saying, hey, Jesus is basically an appendage and Christians are an appendage of this party or right. that party. So on the, you, you don't want to... You don't want people to think, okay, well, if, if I'm going to denounce that party, that means I'm saying all of you should be members of this party. And when we do that, that's when we sound like we're subverting the gospel to a party agenda. And that is awful. You do not right. want to do that. And that's why I'm really it's uncomfortable. It's never gone to, well for Christians when they no, have. that's right. Yeah. And that's why I'm uncomfortable with the question. Yeah, the way it's I would just, put ah. it is uh, that it can become, first of all, dispositive. In that there are things you, you, you we actually are clear about what we can't do than what we can do. That's right. Politically. So it's dispositive. We know no, we, we right. can't do that. Now, what to do between the other alternatives is difficult, and uh, we're going to have to work this out with fear and trembling, I think. Um, but I, I think the other thing to notice is, and I, I do this with students, I will give them the 1960 platforms of the Republican and Democratic parties. You can't tell them apart. Yeah. And tax policy, they're virtually the same. Yeah. Uh, foreign policy, the Democrats are, if anything, more conservative than the Republicans. Uh-huh. Uh, capital gains taxes are called for by the Democrats, uh, not so much by the Republicans. Uh, and, and so you look at that, you go, okay, but still there's a shared universe of meaning. I had someone say to me who was in conversation with folks at your church and was kind of noting that some of them had said, it's much more difficult to live in Washington these days. And uh, of course it is, because Republicans and Democrats used to be able to go to the same parties and, and had dinner with one another and all the rest. And so people romanticize that in kind of the Bob Dole, you know, uh, uh, days and, you know, uh, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, you know. And uh, what people don't recognize is that the two parties are arguments in motion and they've gone in two very different directions. And this is far more difficult terrain for Christians. Well, and that's the title of the book, How the Nations Rage. We feel that rage increasingly in the – so it's not just in Washington, D.C. I trust every person in this room who's in social media feels it, yeah. right? You, you, you feel the volume turning up. You see you, – you feel – you hear people getting into arguments and angry and all sorts of, of stuff on Twitter, on Facebook, and, you know, at the workplace. That's where politics What's, has moved too. No, that's right. That's a, sports. Yeah. Right? Anger is a property of – Injustice. Uh, anger is the God-given emotion in the face of an injustice. It is right to be angry at injustice. Uh, 
And so when you have uh, different tribes or two different parts of America animated by two different gods, they are going to have two different views of, I don't want to say two, multiple gods, multiple concepts of justice, right? right? Therefore, multiple different things we're going to get angry about. And the further our gods go apart from one another, the more angry we're going to be because your injustice is a threat to me. So I'm going to come after you with a, with a religious zeal. And I think that's what we experience increasingly in the public square and all of its forms. Jonathan Lehman, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Oh, thank you, brother. Well, that was a wide-ranging conversation, and the conversation speaks for itself. We covered a host of issues in this conversation before a live audience, issues that are themselves quite live, quite urgent. It is really incumbent upon Christians in this generation to have this kind of conversation, to step back and ask, what is required of us politically as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? How should we even conceive of politics? How do we understand theology, church, gospel to relate to these big questions? And speaking of church, that's a huge question. How do we understand and discern the role of the church within a political conversation. But even more urgently, how do we begin a true, authentically Christian political conversation with the church? Because as Christians, we can't start anywhere else. Every conversation is an opportunity. Every conversation is a risk. Having a conversation before a big live audience is always interesting because there are people right then and there overhearing the conversation. And that's really why we do this program, so that worthy conversations can be overheard. But there's another reason we do this, and that is so that conversations will be continued, picked up by others who overhear the conversation and begin worthy conversations of their own. Many thanks to Jonathan Lehman for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on our undergraduate college, Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.